For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele entitled, Stand Up for Jesus. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Reg was very kind to accommodate me in a song selection change uh, at the last minute. Unfortunately, he didn't get my text, so I appreciate that. Stand up for Jesus. You know, this, uh, this song has, uh, this hymn has a, an interesting history. Uh, in fact, lots of hymns have really interesting histories. And I know at times past, uh, different individuals, either at song leading or, or giving a message, would bring out something about some of the history of, of some of the, the hymns that we sing. Um, it's really interesting, too, that uh, a lot of our well-loved classic hymns have come out of the 18th, 19th century. And the stories behind them are often found in tremendous pain and suffering. And out of that has come some beautiful pieces of music, some beautiful poetry that, is, that we now sing as hymns. One of those is, of course, Amazing Grace know the history of that hymn. It is perhaps the most successful Christian hymn in the history of the world. And of course it was written by a former slave captain who after recognizing the horrendous things that he was doing, what he was engaged in, wrote that this beautiful hymn. But it was born out of pain, wasn't it? It was born out of the pain and suffering of countless sons and daughters of Africa that we will never know until maybe in the resurrection in God's kingdom. Amazing grace. Then there's another hymn, which has also got a very powerful story, but it's a more personal story in a certain sense. It is well with my soul. Who loves that hymn? It's just beautiful, isn't it? the words, it is well with my soul. Do you know the history of that, that hymn? Born out of pain. The writer, the author of the hymn, Horatio Spafford, who after losing his son in the great Chicago fire of 1871, then two years later, lost all four of his daughters in a ship, a shipwreck essentially, um, the ship that they were traveling on with their mother, traveling across the Atlantic, was struck another vessel and sank. And he received a telegraph from his wife saying, um, saved alone. He arrived in Europe after being rescued and without all of her daughters. I mean, what kind of pain is that? That is unbelievable pain. And as he neared the site, when he himself was joining his wife in Europe, as he neared the site of where the, the tragic sinking happened, he wrote those words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. How do you have the fortitude to write those words when however many hundreds or thousands of feet below you are the bodies of your daughters? Amazing stories born out of incredible pain. And then there's the song that we just sang, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And you think, well, that's a happy song. It's a, a rousing song. There can't be any pain there, and yet it was also born out of pain. It was written by George Duffield uh, for the funeral of a powerful and much-loved revivalist Episcopal preacher by the name of Dudley Tyne, who died tragically after he had gotten his arm caught in a uh, threshing machine. 
He didn't die straight away. He was injured, had a lot of blood loss, and then got severe infection, of course. And, and on his deathbed, he said he is reported to have said to his father, who was also a retired Episcopal minister, he said, stand up for Jesus, Father, and tell my brethren of, of the ministry to stand up for Jesus. His essentially dying words was to encourage his brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ, to stand up for Jesus. And so those words were taken uh, by George Duffield, and he crafted the hymn that we just sung for this preacher's funeral. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger. You never want to bear. And there's, there's kind of an irony also in the, in the words of this song. Because shortly before the accident, this young preacher said, just, you know, as part of his preaching, he just said, may my arm be cut off from my body if I don't preach the word of God. And it was his arm that got caught in this threshing machine. And then that story finds its way into the verses that we've just read. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Now think about that for a minute. Think about what that means. The arm of flesh will fail us. What is he trying to say? When he wrote these words for that funeral service, what was the author trying to say? I think he was saying that we are weak, aren't we? That we cannot always provide for ourselves. We use our arms to do everything. Uh, except now, of course, with coronavirus, we shake hands with our feet. I don't know if you've seen that going on. But we use our, our arms and our hands, and it's, it, they are the most functional part of our body for what we need to do to move around and, and to, to do things in life. And he says, it will fail you. And we know that to be true. The arm of flesh will fail you. We can't always do what we used to do with our arms, can we? I know a friend of mine at work that he's got some kind of frozen shoulder thing and so he can't lift a certain way and he can't move a certain way in his arm. And he looks fine, but his arm is literally failing him. And he's doing some physical therapy and trying to improve that, but he'll never get his full motion back. And he doesn't know how he did this to him. The arm of flesh will fail us. But the larger truth than that is also that just human beings fail, don't they? Human beings fail each other. We fail one another at times. The men and women in your life, the most powerful and influential people in your life, your mother, your father, brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, Teachers, mentors, in the end, will fail. They will fail us. Not out of choice. Not because they wanted to. But because they are flesh. And we know this. We've experienced this and we've seen this. They have strength just like we do. But it's limited. It's limited by the biological processes that go on in our body. And we learn that, don't we, so very quickly on the Day of Atonement. When without a certain amount of sustenance, we are weak and we have headaches and, and we just don't feel good. And, and we can be short and impatient. And, and, and all the weaknesses of our flesh come out when we just don't have enough food. And so, as with all things in this material universe, Flesh breaks down, it grows weak, and it can be undone by accidents, by sickness, by war, by pestilence, as we're seeing by famine, and just by age. 
In fact, we're seeing that now, aren't we? I re referred to the coronavirus uh, earlier. The whole world seems to be panicking, or at least the whole news world is panicking, for sure. And governments as well. And I'm sure a lot of that is appropriate action, but there's an awful lot of hype, too, isn't there? And if you dig into some of the statistics, I don't know if it's as scary as, as they say it is. But that aside, a tiny little virus that we cannot even see with the naked eye is causing disruption around the world. Real or imagined danger doesn't really matter, does it? The stock market tanks, companies are having employees stay home, uh, they're, they're stopping trade shows that are multi-million dollar trade shows. There's just all kinds of immediate effects, never mind the health effects for the individuals that are catching the virus. Tiny little virus. We're not so big and strong, are we? arm of flesh and fail us. This tiny organism that can kill us if we're in any way immunocompromised. We have a weakened immune system. And our leaders, I mean, they're not going to stop it, are they? They try their best, and we appreciate that. But as we can tell, I mean, all the way here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, there's a patient now with the coronavirus. So from way off in China, in how many weeks has it been? Six weeks? I don't, I don't know. Not too long. It's now here. Flesh will fail us. Our leaders are powerless to stop it. And we as a species are powerless ultimately to stop the leading cause of death, which is death. We can't stop it. We've not been able to reverse engineer it. We haven't been able to change our biology. We have not been able to stop it. And yet, we're still often so surprised by this revelation. We expect our health and our strength to continue forever. If only it would. But then even beyond that, beyond our health and strength, we also expect you know, our abilities, our skills to continue forever. Our coordination and our eyesight, finally getting to the point that I might actually have to admit I need some kind of extra lens in the bottom of my glass. There are so many things that can fail us in, in our flesh, in our, in our bodies. I mentioned the stock market before, and our investments. They can fail, can't they? Because they're fundamentally run by people, and people can fail. In fact, the Lord told Jeremiah this in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 5. It says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, for he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. I think Brian might have a, a, little, a little shrub. Who would like to be a little shrub in the desert? Well, it looks pretty lonely. I mean, I guess he can shout out to that other shrub in the distance. There's nothing there, is there? And he says it's, it's parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and which is not inhabited. All because we trust in man, in our community, in our nations, in, in however we want to, to look at that, but also ourselves. We trust in our own strength. Just think of that. If we trust in the flesh, if we trust in what we can do, or what in others can do for us. The Lord tells us that in an absolute trust in others, that our flesh or the flesh of others, not any of that can save us. Not any of that can 
provide for us, to not do the best for us. Only, not only foolish, is it? But notice what else it says. We are departing from the Lord when we do that. It's actually a departure from God when we trust in our own flesh, when we trust in the, in the, the powers of mankind. Have we ever done that? Have you ever done that? I'm not asking you to, to stand up, but if you want to, you can tell us. But I'm sure we have, haven't we? We've trusted a friend, and they let us down. And a family member, and they weren't there for us. No matter maybe how hard they tried, we trusted in our own ability to resolve the situation. I've done that. Probably done that a lot. Sometimes I get lucky, and it works out. But other times, not so much. One time I remember really trusting in, in others to do the right thing and to do the, the logical thing. And uh, Glenda might be able to attest to this because uh, back when I worked at Penwell, which we both worked there, I had been the first hire of a new help desk that they were developing. And over the course of a few years, we built the help desk. I was responsible for that. I was the help desk supervisor. And then during the process of time, after we had kind of built that team, um, the company wanted to create a manager position for that. And I just thought, well, I built it, right? I mean, <laughs> I know how it all works. I set up the procedures. I did all of that stuff, not totally by myself. But I was the supervisor, so I should get the job. Yeah, you'll get the job. Don't, don't worry about it. A year goes by, and unbeknownst to me, the, there was a battle, and there was arguments, and there was somebody else that got the job. Somebody else that didn't do the work. Somebody else that lied and cheated their way into the position. And I learned a lesson. That I shouldn't put my trust and faith in man, in flesh, in that way. And I'm not saying we don't trust one another. You understand that, right? But the arm of flesh will fail us. And so even though I made that mistake, God was gracious because after just really a few months, I was able to go back to England for a special project, and so I had, didn't even have to deal with this guy, which was good. And then when I got back, I called a friend of mine and got a new position at a new company. And it was bumpy for a few years, but that moment in time pivoted the next 20 years of my life and I've been able to enjoy secure and stable employment because of that. Trusting in God is way more effective. It is effective. Trusting in man is not. Then God says this, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and it will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Like that. I was trying to find the best image I could of a tree in the desert by the water. <laughs> It's a little, a little blurry. But we get the imagery, don't we? And notice in the scriptures here, it does not say that if you are planted by the waters, there will be no drought and no heat. It just says that when you are planted by the water, when you trust in God, when the heat comes, it will not burn you. It will not break you down. When the drought comes, as they will, you will not be anxious. will not shrivel up and die. But we will flourish. 
even in the drought. And of course we know that rivers or streams of water, they can even stop moving on the surface. But underground, they, that water supply continues to flow, feeding the root. That is the level of faith and trust we can have in God. The Apostle Paul approaches it and this struggle that we have in a different way. But he comes to the same conclusion in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. And I just find it fascinating that he says to rejoice as the first thing. And the reminder of the last thing. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious. But for you it is safe. So first and foremost, he says, rejoice. And then he says, it's not tedious for me to keep writing to you and encouraging you. And letter upon letter upon letter, he doesn't care how many times he has to send words of encouragement. It's not tedious to him. He is happy to do it. He wants to do it. So why is it that sometimes it's tedious for us to Why is it hard for us to to pick it up and read what he said to the churches? He said it's not tedious for him. It should not be tedious for us, should it? This is how we understand how to trust in God. And then he says this. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation or those that perform circumcision. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, you know, we know that they had very clear examples of believing in the flesh. They had circumcision. And circumcision not just for health, but for religious reasons. For the adoption of that first covenant, Right? And it was commanded in the scriptures, wasn't it? As part of the covenant. And yet, it's done away with it. By the time we get to Paul writing here, he says this does not matter. And the reason why, because the covenant has been torn up. There is a new covenant replacing the one that required the circumcision. of the flesh. There is now a new covenant in place that requires the circumcision of the heart. So it was done away with. It was torn up. Israel had not kept their side of the contract. They had, in effect, trusted the flesh. They trusted what? The temple. They trusted the Ark of the Testimony. Well, it's right here. We've got it. We're going to be safe. No. They They trusted their circumcision. That didn't count for anything in the new covenant in Christ Jesus. They trusted what they could see with their eyes and not trusting the Lord who they could not see. And of course, even when the Lord did appear and was in front of them and walked with them, they still didn't trust him. And then we have, as Paul is saying here, he's warning them, even amongst those that are claiming to follow Christ Jesus. They're saying, ah, but you've got to do these physical things to be saved. You have to trust in these physical attributes of the flesh. Paul says no. For we are the circumcision, he says, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more than, more than anybody else. I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. If anyone has fleshly credentials, it's Paul. 
And where did those fleshly credentials take it? He was at war with God. Even following the, the, the law and, and even following everything that he understood that that God wanted him to do, he was at war with God. What was it that Jesus said to him on the road to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? The works of the flesh led him to that place. What about us? Do we war against God? No, I don't. I don't war against God. I don't do the circumcision thing, and I'm, I'm not about the physical attributes of the temple. I'm not practicing Jewish practice. I'm Christian. I don't war against God. I don't pull away from God. What about when we're upset? When the heat comes. What about when we're anxious because the drought has come? Is that a kind of trusting in the flesh? What am I going to do? I've got to, I've got to fix this. Trusting in what we can do instead of trusting in what God will do for us. We try to solve the problems by ourselves. We maybe trust the people around us. We take our problems to our friends. What do you think? What do you think I should? I don't know. Did you ask God yet? Maybe I should start saying that to me, to myself, before I go asking a friend, what do you think I should do? Give me some advice. Now, advice isn't bad, but where are we putting our trust? Are we departing from the Lord? Paul says this, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, from whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. And that's an English word for trash. Rubbish. Do we look back at the things that we've lost in life and regret that we did not have? Or do we consider them trash discarded? Or do we regret that we don't have those? Do we regret decisions and mistakes? Long for those things that we once trusted in? Do we regret the loss of wealth? The loss of health? The loss even of loved ones? Are we clinging on to those fleshly physical things? That if we could somehow just get that back, then everything would be right. If I could just go back to that moment and change that decision that I made, things would be perfect. We engage in those mind games, don't we? Woulda, coulda, shoulda kind of mind game. That is almost like a reverse trusting the flesh, isn't it? Instead of just accepting where we are and allowing God to lead us forward. Could that be the same as trusting in the flesh and departing from the Lord? Paul says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I, I think I've talked about this passage in the past. I just love that phrase because it kind of reminds me of Lord of the Rings, right? The fellowship of the ring, the fellowship of his suffering. It's like the band of brothers. It's that brothers in arms concept. We are in the fellowship of Christ's suffering. This struggle to trust Christ Jesus, to trust God, 
like we would a commanding officer. When the bullets and the bombs are whizzing around us, I need you to go and take that hill. Uh, uh, you're crazy. I'm not going out there. Or do we just follow our commanding officer? Do we trust him that he has our back? You know, not just, I tend to think about this in terms more of a, a persecution. But we don't endure any of that right now. But we do endure temptation. We do endure struggles in life. When the flesh says, follow this way. Do the easy thing. Nobody will notice. Follow the ways of the flesh. If you just vote for this one political leader, everything will be so much better. Free money, free college, free everything. And they promise us things that cannot be delivered. And we know it, don't we? Trusting in flesh. Trusting in what we can see and feel. Instead, Paul says this, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay a hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid a hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Such a beautiful passage, isn't it? Written by a man who could probably have some of the deepest regrets anyone could ever have. Because he persecuted the church. He persecuted Christians that now he would gladly give his life for. And he could look back and regret and, and get stuck in what he should have done differently. Instead of moving forward in Christ Jesus. In other words, stand up for Jesus. If we are in distress... Stand up for Jesus. If we're in fear, stand up for Jesus. In any situation we find ourselves in sickness, we press toward the goal of the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Upward call. We stand up for Jesus. Not trusting in flesh, we're trusting that we are planted by the waters, the spiritual waters that we are fed by. He says, therefore, let us, as many are as mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. He's gracious to reveal more to you, to help us understand if we stand up for him. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who also walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind, on earthly things. So easy to get our mind on earthly things. To be drawn in by the things we can touch and feel, see, and engage with, with our flesh. And some are taken, aren't they, from our fellowship. Some have been taken from our fellowship because they want to practice something. They want a, a liturgy, a physical thing that they can do to feel more holy or closer to God or whatever it is. Forgetting once they were called. Forgetting that they are planted, that they were planted by that water, that spiritual water of Christ. In spite of the fact that we have countless examples from the Old and New Testament that testify otherwise, we can still be drawn into the works of flesh, into the thinking of the flesh, 
Life in Christ Jesus is harder. Sometimes we think it should be easier. It's a lie. It's harder. Being easier is the way of flesh. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. Life in Christ Jesus is harder, but it is better. It's hard for a little while, but then the reward is eternal, isn't it? As Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able, even to subdue all things unto himself. Who's looking forward to a glorious body? I've never had one in this life. I want one in the next life. Of course we do. In the words of the hymn, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. It feels so long. Renee and I sometimes are reminded about our experience with our boys in the NICU. And Joseph was in the NICU for three months. There he is waving his hand. It seemed so long. And now three months goes by and we don't even notice. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next victor's song. To those who vanquish evil, a crown of life shall be. They with the king of glory shall reign eternally. A promise, a future. I really hate the fact that I forget to look up and see this at times. Frustrated at work, I'm challenged with health issues, financial worries, whatever the situations we find ourselves in. All these things should be rubbish to me. All these worries should be just so much trash. And yet I find myself moping around in a trash dump in my mind mulling over and wishing I had done things differently, trying to re-engineer situations instead of trusting in Christ. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4, Paul kind of continues the theme and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. And this is one of those challenging scriptures, isn't it? Because we sometimes feel that we have asked, we have prayed, we've laid this out, and it didn't magically get fixed the next day. What is going on? How do we know when God has heard us How do we know that he will perform that thing that we are asking? Tells us right here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I feel like that is an indication that if we have truly laid down our supplications, if we've truly given it to God, then we will experience that peace. But maybe if we're not experiencing that peace, we're just kind of still holding on to a little bit of the problem. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. But this is one of the difficult scriptures, isn't it? Because it goes so deep to our relationship with God and whether he hears our prayer. Because in the core of our being, we know that we're not worthy enough for him to answer them, except he loves sent his son to die for us. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. 
Now, it might not seem like it at first, but this is really practical advice. He's not just saying, you know, think happy thoughts. <laughs> this is actually practical advice. We've all heard of meditation, right? A anybody do meditation? All your hands should go up. And because it's not the traditional, you know, I'm doing some yoga over here and I'm doing some meditation, right? You might do some of that. You may do a combination of relaxing techniques with scripture or whatever you may do. That's great. But everybody meditates. And you know how we do it? Negatively. I should have done this. And you dwell on it all night long. Anybody done one of those? Uh-huh. That's meditation in the wrong direction. We meditate on the things that we messed up with or are worried about trying to fix because we don't have the peace of God, did we? Maybe because we didn't lay it into his hands. We all meditate. But just so often, we meditate, meditate or even medicate in the wrong direction. Paul says, don't do that. Whatever things are true, so in our meditation, I'm going to try this myself. When I can't sleep, when I'm worried about something, find the truth of the matter. What is the truth? What is the truth? And meditate on the truth, not on the fear, not on the self-doubt or whatever it may be that is troubling us. Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, is the things that we are thinking that we're going to do or behave, is it noble? Whatever things are just, is it just? That struggle, that decision-making we're trying to make, is it a just decision? Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these. And if we can't find anything praiseworthy in the struggle or the issues at hand in our life, then we can pick up the scriptures, can't we, and meditate on those things, on the good things that Christ has before us. Think about these things. Imagine yourself doing these things. Perhaps instead of regretting what we didn't do, we should look forward to what we and I do. Instead of meditating on how we don't like this person that is messing around in our life and about what we would like to do to that person, we could meditate on what we should do for that person. How can we help them, lift them up instead of dwelling on our failures and our shortcomings? Can we meditate on how we can improve in Christ Jesus? There's another song that I'm fond of. It's a newer song. It's not, you know, a, it's not a, a classic hymn. But it fits for me, um, as you will tell with the, the title. It's a, a recently written song by Andrew Peterson. And it's called Fool with a Fancy Guitar. I have a fancy guitar. It's called the Takamine. It's a Japanese guitar. Ken likes to call it Take a Mine. Fool with a fancy guitar. It says, it's so easy to cash in these chips on my shoulder. It's so easy to lose this old tongue like a tiger. It is easy to let all this bitterness smolder, just to hide it away like a cigarette lighter. It's easy to curse and to hurt and to hinder. It's easy to not have the heart to remember that I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. I've got voices that scream in my head like a siren, fears that I feel in the night when I sleep, stupid choices I made when I played in the mire, like a kid in the mud in some dirty blind street. I've got sorrow to spare. I've got loneliness too. I've got blood on these hands that hold on to the truth. I mean, that is a powerful image, isn't it? I have blood on the hands that hold on to the truth. We ever been angry at our brother? 
it's the same as murdering our brother, isn't it? We have blood on our hands that hold on to the truth that I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. I swore on the Bible to not tell a lie, but I've lied and lied. I've crossed my heart and hoped to die and have died and died. But if it is true that you gathered my sin in your hand, and you cast it as far as the east from the west, if it is true that you put on the flesh of a man and you walked in my shoes through the shadow of death, if it is true that you dwell in the halls of my heart, that I'm not just a fool with a fancy guitar. No, I am a priest and a prince in the kingdom of God. It's a beautiful song. Powerful words. We should meditate on that fact alone, shouldn't we? That we are the children of God, that we are kings and priests waiting for the kingdom of God. Paul says, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in, in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Such a simple statement. And yet, that's, if there's a verse that we should have tattooed on the inside of our eyelids, it's that one, isn't it? That we can endure, that we can do all things, that we can trust in God. Because of Christ that strengthens us. In the end, brethren, what are we called to do? Well, there's three things. Firstly, not to trust our flesh, or any flesh for that matter. The arm of flesh will fail us. Trust in God and in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we're called to meditate on the things that are good and holy. Not regretting the things and the losses of the past. They were fleshly. They were weak. Thirdly, we are called to remember that we are kings and priests in the kingdom of God. And I'd like to just leave you seven meditations. But you already know these. They are the seven meditations or the seven promises of Revelation. Because if we trust in God, if we do not trust in flesh, but we trust in God and we overcome, these seven things are the things that we can think about and meditate on whenever we are struggling in life. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of of the paradise of God. That's going to be good. I wonder what it tastes like. It will be special. In Revelation 2 and 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Alive forevermore. Forevermore. In Revelation 2.17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. I would like one of those stones with a new name. In Revelation 2.26, And he who overcomes and keeps my works till the end, to him I will give power over the nation. Yeah, we're going to bust these guys around for a little bit. For their good. Under the instruction and the guidance of God. 
In Revelation 3, 5, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. That will be a moment. That will be an amazing moment for us. He who overcomes, Revelation 3.12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Hopefully in permanent marker. That's the kind of tattoos we want to have. Our new name. And then finally in Revelation 3.21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That'll be pretty incredible. What an incredible moment. Maybe it'll take a few billion years for us all to get a turn sitting on the seat. In the end, brethren, no matter what comes, regardless of trials, in plenty or in famine, the fundamental truth of what I was trying to say today is that if we stand up for Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, and we reject the flesh, and the weakness of the flesh, and the lusts of the flesh, and stand up for Jesus, just as we just read, he will confess his name, our name before his father. If we stand up for Jesus, he will stand up for us.